you call the balls and strikes on yourself in the game. You play the ball as it lies, just like you play the hand that you have been given in life. So I think there are fundamental things about this game that when we embrace them, actually not only improves our golf game, but improves our lives. Put another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired Welcome back to The Fire Pit. I'm Matt Janella, and on this episode of The Fire Drill, Michael Bamberger introduces you to the next president of the USGA, who, along with leaders like Mike Wan, seems to be shepherding in a new brand of blue coats. And I'm guessing the game will be better because of them and what they set out to accomplish. Accessibility, diversity, and a true growth of the game. Before I turn it over to Michael and his special guest, we want to thank Dormy Workshop for making the next set of merchandise we'll be dropping this week on firepitcollective.com. We're lucky to have our logos on some of the Bishop family's handmade leather goods, such as head covers, stash bags, and glove caddies. Thanks to Bagboy for their support. Bagboy's Nitron Auto Open Pushcart is the best in the business, and for me, it's not close. And thanks to Parpoints. Our friends Brandon Ebert and Kevin Quinley have created an app that changes the way you can score the game, which is especially good for beginners, kids, families, and buddies trips looking for an alternate format. Download the app today and go make par. Hi, this is Michael Bamberger with the Fire Pit Collective. I'm here with my new buddy, Fred Perpal. We live in, Fred, we live in a very politically correct age where you're not allowed to talk about how somebody looks or how they dress or really anything personal, but we don't do that at the Fire Pit Collective. So I'm just going to tell one quick thing about sort of meeting you from afar and then actually meeting from you. And then I'm going to turn this whole thing over to you. But here's how I saw Fred Propal November, and Fred, you correct me if I have any part of this wrong. November of 2020, they had a Masters. Dustin Johnson won it. But there were no spectators there because of uh, uh, the COVID pan- pandemic restrictions. But Fred was there. I don't know in what capacity. And I saw this man, a very tall, elegant, dark-skinned man who dressed out of the Hogan playbook. And um, I was like, who is this guy? And, uh, and the Masters being the Masters, and that particular year's Masters, uh, being a special one because there were so few people there. I kept seeing Fred over and over and over again. And then we started a conversation and it turned out that Fred was really into golf. And I'm really into golf. So we sort of hit it off that way. But I didn't know much about Fred's life. I knew he was an architect in Dallas. I am going to turn this over to Fred, I promise, in a minute here. I knew he was an architect and a, and a builder and very active in construction and design in Dallas. But beyond that, I really didn't know anything. Then I ran to Fred at, uh, at the PGA Championship at, uh, at Southern Hills. And Fred tells me he's going to be the next president of the USGA. And I follow golf closely, but somehow I did not know that fact. So like, I was like, wow, I really should know, I should know more about Fred. And then we've had a series of great conversations and I'm going to write about Fred for the Fire Pit Collective at length, but we're going to use this as a truncated version to introduce Fred to, uh, to our readers and our listeners. So Fred, thank you so much. Fred, did I get any part of that introduction uh, wrong? Michael, that's 100% true. And uh, it's great to be with you today and great to be with your listeners. Uh, well, that's great. Fred, I'm going to start with the most shocking thing of all. Tell the people when you began, 
when you began playing golf. Well, Michael, I hope we have a fun time today. And, uh, you know, I think part of my story that I, I think, uh, you know, is pretty interesting. I've been golfing for just under 10 years. And uh, I moved to Dallas uh, in January of 2013. And I picked up golf then, um, mostly because I am an, an addict to competition. I love sports and I love nature. And my basketball career, you know, I like to say basketball had left me. And I was looking for something new uh, to challenge myself with, but also to connect. And so I've been playing golf right around 10 years. And I should probably say at this point that Fred will be the first USGA president who has played on a national basketball team. I feel quite secure in saying that. And although there have been tall USGA presidents before, Sandy Tatum, I'm 6'1", he towered over me, Um, Bill Campbell in his late 80s towered over me, but Fred really towers over me. Fred, what are you about six five or six six? Yeah, I'm right around, right around six six and a quarter. You know, um, uh, I feel like I'm shrinking every day <laughs> given all these responsibilities. But yeah, I think. Hey, by the way, Walter Driver is pretty tall too. So you know, it, uh, you know what? That's a tall U.S. Who is taller between you and Walter? I think I've got him just by a smidgen. So now Walter is an Atlanta guy, and Fred, you're an Atlanta guy in a manner of speaking. You're Bahamian. You moved to Atlanta um, with with Beck, the company that you work for now, and uh, and you were playing a lot of uh, basketball in Atlanta as a as a young father. And then tell us uh, how you got into golf when you moved to Dallas. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting was in Atlanta, I had a very you know um, you know sort of defined group of friends, mostly in the real estate business. We played a lot of pickup basketball. We had this wonderful uh, club, sports club that we all played at. And one of the things I credit with my golf life is, you know, moving from Atlanta to Dallas to assume new, uh, you know, business responsibilities. It really left me open for new, uh, you know, groups and new friendships. Uh, my family and I, we wanted a club, you know, really for privacy and intimacy to be able to, you know, connect with folks since we were sort of a replant back to Dallas. And I joined Northwood Club, which was actually the host of the 1952 uh, U.S. Open. Great group of people. Um, we connected immediately with a lot of good friends there, but I was not really golfing at the time. And I recognized as much as I loved the 19th old that the guys were actually having much more fun out on the golf course. And it got me really curious about golf. And so, um, you know, I credit all my friends at Northwood for really attracting me into the game, for encouraging me to play. Um, even when I was sort of brand new and really, really, uh, you know, sort of not up to playing at that caliber, they always made room for me. And that's the thing I think we love about golf. It's, you know, at, at our core, you know, you know, golf is a very inclusive uh, game. And I hope, you know, I hope as we keep building and all the work we're doing at the USGA, as well as all the other leaders in golf, that we keep demonstrating the inclusive uh, nature of golf and the availability uh, now more than ever. Well, Fred, that's well said, and that's that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to get to know you and to write about you and introduce you to uh, uh, to, to a broader golf audience. Um, and I'm going to introduce the subject here that I know is is dear to you. Here you are, having only taken up golf nine years ago. Now, of course, this is exceptional, and now you're going to become the next president of the USGA. But what I'd love to hear you talk about is the fact that this game seems like it's intimidating to start in. And and maybe it is. And I'm wondering to what degree is it part of your agenda to make golf more welcoming to more people and how can you actually do that? Yeah. 
Well, look, golf has been great to me. I mean, in one way, you know, for me, it's it's very humbling to have the opportunity to serve and to give back to the game because it really has given me a life, uh, you know, a quality of life that, you know, I, I frankly didn't know existed. And from the outside, golf is very intimidating. I would tell you, you know, particularly as an African-American man, you know, I didn't see a lot of my golf, uh, you know, a lot of myself in the elite golf environments. And, you know, I think, um, in reality, what seemed so intimidating from the outside was so welcoming inside. And I think making that first step is probably the challenge many people have, in t- particularly in the green grass world of golf, uh, to, to get into an environment. I, I like to joke, golf is like our own religion. You know, we've got, we've got our own Bible, you know, we've got our own sort of dress, you know, we've got our own language and all those things, uh, particularly for people who have not grown up uh, around the game or with the means to play the game, it's, it's entirely intimidating from the outside. Um, uh, and yet I've found the experience to be the exact opposite on the inside. Some of my best friends in life are my golf buddies. I've got great mentors in the game of golf, which is how I got to this spot. And so for, for us, all of these people who have come to the game during COVID, we need to do that all that we can to let them know that there is room for this game for them in this game and that they are absolutely welcomed. And I love the notion of, you know, top golf and some of these, you know, sort of what I call virtual golf environments that are allowing people to experiment with the game, to be introduced to the game in a less formal and intimidating uh, environment. And I think those of us in the more structured uh, game of golf need to make sure that we fling the doors wide open. So all of these folks who have showed up in the last two years during COVID that have experimented with the game know that there is absolutely room in this game for them. And so that, you know, that's something I think we can have a lot of fun with. Fred, what would you like to see the USGA do under your leadership to make golf more inviting to more people? Yeah. Look, I think, you know, today now more than ever, people are, are looking and wondering whether we actually want them in the game. And I think the USGA, we have to continue to reach our arms out. I would like to see us invest more deeply in uh, youth play at both the elite level and the recreational level. I think we've got to make bigger investments in accessibility, you know, investing in, um, you know, sort of maybe refurbishing courses. Uh, Youth on Course is a program I love that actually allows young people to actually play golf uh, for very low fee. We've got to find the programs that are growing the game, uh, kind of like we have done with Drive, Chip and Putt, along with, with our other partners and we've got to invest more deeply in these games. But we also have to make golf less intimidating. You know, I would like to see us have more programs to explain the game, uh, more opportunities for folks in, you know, underserved communities to interact with the game, to introduce it as a curriculum, perhaps in schools, um, to triple down on the first tee. So I think there's a it's there's not one magic button here to be pressed. But look, Michael, we know one thing, that there is not an interest problem in the game of golf. There's an accessibility problem. And that accessibility is directly related to the cost. So we need to, you know, sort of not only give our time, but we need to figure out how to give more of our treasure to reduce the barriers to entry and to allow more people in. And I'm proud of the work we're already doing, but I hope under, you know, sort of the next three years as we have our new CEO, Mike Wan, and and really a new capable team uh, on the management team, that we'll spend more time, more dollars actually opening uh, that accessibility up. Very good. Fred, the uh, uh, the U.S. Open is being played this week. Uh, you've been to the Country Club. Uh, uh, what, what, what do you expect we'll see this week at the Country Club? 
Well, I think you should expect a classic uh, U.S. Open, right? You know, sort of um, uh, very narrow fairway, fairways that are firm and fast, uh, you know, greens that are challenging, um, uh, rough uh, that is thick. Um, you know, we, we, we want to identify the best, as Sandy Tatum said, identify the best players in the game. And we want to make sure that uh, we have an attractive environment uh, for our fans. And so I'm very excited. You know, in many ways, um, this, uh, you know, Brookline, um, really is, a, you know, a, a trampoline for American golf. You know, Francis Weeman win, winning the U.S. Open there um, is a story we love to tell. Obviously, he would later go on to become a key figure in the USGA. But as a 20-year-old winning the U.S. Open, as a person of regular means uh, who caddied at Brookline, uh, to introduce golf to more regular Americans, to let them know that it was a game for them, like, wow, what a gift, you know, and you know, we like to say the USGA, you can't buy history. You, you can only earn it. And uh, given where we are right now at this inflection point with more regular people coming into the game, you know, we think it's wonderful symmetry. And so we're so excited about Brookline. We're, we're excited about next week's uh, U.S. Open. And, uh, you know, we hope we hope we will, I, again, identify the best player in the game. We think that's what's special about a U.S. Open. Fred, you, you, may, you know so much golf history. Uh, you've picked up so much in such a short amount of time. You may know this quote, but you, but you may not. But I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll share just uh, for any of our listeners who haven't. So the 1974 U.S. Open was at Wingfoot. The previous year, um, Johnny Miller shot a 63 in the closing round at, uh, at Oakmont. And all of golf, and this is just when I was getting into golf, and all of golf was like, oh, they're going to kill the guys this week. And they did. Wingfoot was a, was, was a monster. And, uh, and Sandy Tatum uh, was then your job right now. Fred, tell me the formal name of your job right now, chairman of competitions well, committee. Well, yeah, I'm the, the, the chairman of the USGA championships committee right now. Yeah. Champ- so I think that's what Tatum's job was then uh, uh, prior to him becoming president. And, uh, and, and Tatum's court at the time was – Tatum's Sandy Tatum's quote at the um, at the time was we're not trying to embarrass the best golfers in the world we're trying to identify them and uh it's lived on uh uh, uh ever since Fred you were talking about uh, Francis we met before um have you ever seen that photograph of we met and Eddie Lowry his 10-year-old caddy together yeah um yeah. How about the cocky strut of that 10-year-old Eddie Lowry yeah. with that yeah. little tie yeah. and that little um pork pie hat that he's wearing yeah yeah and he'd go on to be a fantastic player himself, right? I mean, I think that's the great part of this this game. You know, we've had traditions, generation after generation of Americans uh, of regular means being integrated into the game. Now more than ever, we want to see all Americans have access to this game. And so I love to go back to the you know sort of Fran- Francis Weeman U.S. Open because, you know, that to me is a story uh, that all Americans and, – and by the way, it reflects the beauty of America, right? It's why we enjoy – being American, that there is something aspirational about being American. And I always say in the game of golf, like for me, it's not about dumbing this game down uh, for, for, for regular people. It's about giving them something to aspire to. And for me, that's what golf has been uh, truly. It's been aspirational and it's been inspirational. And hopefully our championships, that's what we're doing. We're inspiring people to you know join with us in this culture uh, and this beautiful game of golf. You know, that's a very interesting comment, Fred, and I, I read a lot into it when you say that, that golf is aspirational. Um, you and I love golf, and we, like, and we know it can improve lives. It's improved your life. It's improved my life. But it's not for everybody. And if you dumb golf down too much, 
by trying to make it accessible to everybody or interesting to everybody, you actually can lose the thing that makes golf special in the first place. It's a slow, contemplative, difficult game, yeah. like bridges and, 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 and other activities. Um, do you think it's important that golf continue to embrace those basic DNA facts about the game? I absolutely believe it is fundamental. I mean, you know, as a young kid growing up in a tough environment, I always went to church and I looked at, you know, the folks in business uh, that were successful. I wanted to understand, you know, how they were achieving their success. I looked at my parents and how hard they worked. Everything in life worth having, Michael, is worth working hard for. To have a good golf game, you have to work hard at it. There's a symmetry in life. You know, a composition, your character. How does one actually practice developing character? You know, I think, you know, highly accomplished people love golf because it is something that is difficult to conquer that may, it may be unconquerable. These are traits that are wonderful for young people to learn how to interact with adults, to learn what character and integrity actually looks like up close. You call the balls and strikes on yourself in the game. You play the ball as it lies just like you play the hand that you have been given in life. So I think there are fundamental things about this game that when we embrace them, actually not only improves our golf game, but improves our lives. And we should make sure that we keep telling that story so that we are not forced to dumb ourselves down. I believe etiquette is an important part of golf. I love taking my 16-year-old to the course, and I don't want her to behave you know, like she's at a you know, jungle gym. I want her to learn how to conduct herself in a manner that is dignified and elegant and uh, controlled, because those are also characteristics that will be helpful later in life. And so, and that's not saying that we shouldn't be welcoming, but somehow we've got to be yes and people. Yes, we want to be welcoming and we want to explain people all of these values and virtues that we find so near and dear in the game. Well, Fred, amen to all of that. But what about a guy shows up, he's got, you know, a sleeve of tattoos, he's got his shirt tails out. Uh, you know, he's not the characteristic golfer that we, th that, that we think of um, when we think about club golf. Um, should golf be welcoming to that person or should we expect that person to conform to standards and mores of a different period? What, what's, what's your feeling about that? Well, I think we got to have environments for both, right? We've got to have environments for ungolfed people to welcome them in, right? Because before, before you start sermonizing to people, they have to know that you actually are interested in them, uh, not just trying to be interesting to them. They got to know that you want them there. So I think there needs to be environments that are completely casual where people can have fun with the game. You know, at my home course, Trinity Forest, we have this little uh, short course where you can go over and drive scooters and uh, have a few drinks and really listen to your music and have a good time. And, and that's a way for us to, you know, actually attract people into the culture of the game and the club. And then there are going to be formal, um, you know, environments where it, golf is more structured. So I think we have to have both, but absolutely the young man who's untucked and uh, has a very casual disposition, we need to find ways to attract and to connect. And then once we connect, and we build these relationships, we need to then use the relationships to explain why one ought to go on the journey of formality. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a role for that in your life. And I have just found, you know, with my work with young people, that golf has given me this wonderful gift to explain to young men, particularly young men of color, 
why it's important to have good decorum, why it's important to be properly groomed, why you want your container to match your character so that people are not judging you harshly from the outside based on appearance. And so I think we can use this gift to kind of continue to have the kind of relationships across our communities that we want so that we can lean into each other. And Michael, as you know, like we're not going to have the country we want until we're all in with each other. That's what I love about golf. It gives you this wonderful platform, uh, this wonderful framework where people can spend time with each other. And, you know, people that get to know each other can learn to trust each other and people that trust each other can do well together. And certainly for me, that's been a wonderful you know, tool in life for me, both with my mentors, people who I, I'm learning from, and then also finding time with young men and young women that I actually want uh, to be mentors too. And so, you know, I, I feel like no one should be excluded based on how they look. But that doesn't mean that we sort of dumb it down and leave it right there. You know, what a gift we all have to share what has been successful for us. And what a gift we have to, to have this proximity so that we can learn from others. And I think, look, that's what I love about golf. Uh, that's beautifully said. Uh, Fred, um, you and I are both at Marion right now where the Curtis Cup's being played. Uh, across the pond, uh, there's another tournament being played, the first of the live events. Uh, you talked about uh, golf as y- you earn your way in golf. It's hard. It takes a lot of work to get, you know, even semi-competent golf. That live event is invitational. U.S. Open is an open championship. Uh, everybody who's in the field has earned their way in. Um, can you talk about uh, the juxtaposition of going from this live event with the taxi cabs on the golf course and the jets uh, uh, flying uh, overhead and the shotgun star, 54 holes, uh, no cut, and what we're going to have this week at, uh, at the country club. Michael, I'm going to avoid going into, you know, all of the dramatics and professional golf right now. I'm going to, I'm going to stay passionate and focus on this week's amateur golf uh, that we're putting on at the Curtis cup today. You know, uh, I got to watch our American team tee off from the patio at Marion, uh, there's no more special place in golf than sitting on the patio at Marion having coffee and watching this wonderful American team compete with this, uh, you know, Great Britain and Ireland team. You can almost see the cultures of the two, uh, you know, countries and locales coming out. Of course, uh, we are the United States Golf Association, so I'm a little biased here, but uh, our team um, is uh, a beautiful uh, young women. Um, it's multicultural. Uh, it's athletic. You can see the way these uh, ladies have respect uh, for each other across the team. The women um, are just playing extraordinary golf on one of the greatest environments in golf. Like that's what we want to do at the USGA. We want to continue to one open up opportunities for everyone, so that the women play on the same caliber of venues that the men do. Uh, two, we want to showcase that there is beauty in our diversity and that there that you can also be proud of where you came from and be proud of where you're going. And so today, you know, um, you know, I want to give the women their due uh, and, and focus on the Curtis Cup. Next week at Brookline, you know, our job is to conduct the most open championship in golf. You earn your way in. And that is, uh, that's been fundamental to who we've been. And I think you're going to see the best uh, uh, men uh, in golf um, take on one of the classic cathedrals of the game. And, uh, and compete for a U.S. Open championship. It's the most difficult one to win, 
we we believe you've got to dirty every club in your bag. This you know, it's going to test every aspect of your golf game. And uh, what a gift! You know, what a gift we we get to be proximate to this, and uh, and hopefully your audience is tuned into both. Um, so uh, that's I'm going to leave it at that relative to where we're at in the world of golf today. Uh, on that basis, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to ask you about Donald Trump and his uh, and his role in golf because I think I know where that question would go. Um, who are some of the U.S. Open winners you've met over the years, and, and what kind of impression have they ma- made on you? You know, um, one of the things, Michael, I you know, it's interesting because uh, when uh, when I was uh, nominated as uh, president elect, uh, Rand Jarris, who was a great friend of mine at the USGA, sent me all these facts about. Um, you know, my presidency and or my impending presidency. And it was very humbling. In fact, I, I will tell you multiple times uh, I choked up um, in that first week, just talking to my wife, Abby, you know, we've had this great journey together and I'm, I'm so, you know, appreciative of all that she's meant to support me in not only my career, but also in my passions. And, and it was very emotional, you know, to learn uh, one, I, I would be one of the youngest, not we've had, you know, five or six younger than I, I am. Um, I'd be the first African-American. I'm very proud of that because I want people of color to know that this game is beautiful and it's available to all of us. It always has been. Uh, actually, the first professional golfer born in the United States was African-American. You know, So this has always been a game open to all of us, and we uh, full throated on that. But one of the things I love is, Michael, I'll be the first Gen X president of the USGA. And I find that a wonderful bridge between these boomers who have been my mentors in the game and these millennials coming up behind us. And, uh, you know, I've, I've enjoyed getting to know John Rahm and uh, being able to play, uh, wow. uh, uh, you know, and, and, and watch him and, and, and actually help hand him his trophy last year. That was very inspirational the way he brought it home. Um, Bryson DeChambeau is a Dallas guy and, uh, you know, um, we've gotten to know each other over the years. I've, I'm fascinated with, you know, the way he's approaching the game and trying to make changes. And, and so, you know, Justin Rose, uh, you know, we, we have a club in common and of course he won his championship here at Marion and you only have to take two steps in the door and see that. And of course, Justin, in my view, has one of the most beautiful swings in golf. So, you know, I've, I've been, very fortunate, you know, to participate both in the formal game of golf and the informal. But I'm, I'm also thinking about the special opportunity as a Gen Xer, as someone straddling these two generations uh, to be that bridge and to connect, you know, with with my mentors who are more seasoned than I am, but also to you know reach arms out and to be in communication with the younger elite players coming along and so that we have more relatability as well. So what a gift and what an opportunity. Fred, could you ever imagine a game where um, Bryce, Bryson DeChambeau uh, plays with a different golf ball or equipment with uh, that uh, has different standards uh, than regular Joe golfers? Do you think that would be a good thing for the game? Could you ever imagine that happening? Well, Michael, it's a multi—it's you know, a—it's a very complicated issue. Um, we have been, uh, along with the RNA, we have not been. Um, shy about our investigating uh, distance and its impact on the game overall. You can actually go onto the USGA's website and we have a distance insight uh, project where you can download if you're reading buff, but we also have short hand to tell you what we're exploring. And we know that um, the distance that uh, elite players are hitting the ball is becoming an issue in terms of the sustainability, the affordability, and the access to golf. And that's something that we 
want to address. We're looking at this really in two forms. One, we're looking at, you know, uh, the driver and its impact on the game. And we're also studying the golf ball. And we've, we've been pretty, um, you know, transparent about what we're studying and why. Um, in terms of solutions, I, I would say suffice to say we have to do something. And, you know, we want to be collaborative in what we're doing. So we're uh, spending time with all the equip- equipment manufacturers. I was, uh, you know, visiting with one or two uh, uh, earlier in the uh, su- sorry, late last summer. And I'll be visiting with a few others along with other members of the executive committee and the management team. And really the management team is taking the lead on this along with the RNA. But, you know, there's no question we have to address this issue. And one could argue that we've waited maybe a little too long. Uh, and so I won't talk specific solutions now, but I do think um, the recreational player does not have an issue with how far they hit the ball. In fact, one could argue we need a two-pronged solution. We need, uh, we need a solution that makes it easier and somewhat more forgiven for the recreational player while also you know, addressing how far the elite player hits the ball. Because all of us have been who love golf have been to golf courses that have 40 yards of teeing area, or maybe in some cases 60 yards, 100 yards of teeing areas that no one other than 0.1% of golfers use. And yet that's embedding 20%, 25% more cost in the game. And it is completely in conflict with our desire to attract more people to the game because it's making the game more expensive, less sustainable, and increasing that hurdle. And so you can expect that uh, this is an issue that the USGA, along with the RNA, the, our, our governing b- bodies, are paying very close um, attention to. We're being very collaborative with how we work with the equipment manufacturers and all other stakeholders. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to keep all the solutions on the table uh, in order to get this right. You know, one of the reasons I'm excited about your ascendancy to the presidency is it's been a long time since the USGA has had a representative who can really speak to a broad population. And the, the person I'm speaking of is, is Arnold Palmer. And Arnold and the USGA had a sort of falling out that's too complicated to go into at this point. Um, but it definitely related to that two-prong approach that you were speaking of. Uh, so... It's interesting to hear you uh, You mention that uh, that two-prong approach is something a lot of USGA officials have been actually scared to, uh, to even talk about. So it'll be interesting to see uh, 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 where, you, where you go with that. Um, Fred, let me leave you with this. Um, you're very, go ahead, Fred. Yeah, and one thing I don't, you know, look, we haven't solved the problem yet, but I'm saying we've got to be willing to think about these two constituencies and think about the separate needs of both. And I'm not saying that, you know, the bifurcation word is a word that we intentionally avoid. And I'm not telling you that, that you know, sort of we are going to bifurcate. But what I'm saying is now more than ever, and we put it, we put it in our Distance Insight report, we are thinking about these two different constituencies. And so, again, no, no solutions. And we certainly don't, don't see ourselves segmenting the game in any dramatic way. But we are thinking about solutions that might allow us to be yes and people. Yes, we want to curtail distance and we want to make the game more forgiving uh, for the recreational player. And we're we're trying to find the elegant uh, balance between the two. So more as more develops, but I just don't want to give the impression that we've solved the issue. One of the things, Michael, I, I have to also add in here, we're trying to do it in a very collaborative way. And we've always had a process to do this. But I think today we're just really being more full throated about how we go about it. And hopefully 
all of our other stakeholders um, will feel that they've been heard and they've had the opportunity to weigh in. Fred, I, uh, from having played this game a long time and having played uh, a fair amount of public golf, I have absolute proof that there is bifurcation in the game. And it shows up every time somebody hits the ball out of bounds and they do what every sensible person is. They just drop it where it went out of bounds and out of shot. They have figured out the USJ rules better than the USJ, in my humble in my opinion. Um, all right, Fred, let me leave you with this. I know you're a very good athlete, and we've talked about this before. A good athlete's game shows up surprisingly more in short game than long game uh you know pitching and chipping and and putting and bunker play whereas that's really where you see the eye hand coordination uh but that's a preamble to the following question can you remember because this relates to what a, a lot of people aspire to do no matter where they drop the ball when it went out of bounds can you remember breaking a hundred for the first time what was that like for you I remember distinctly breaking a hundred. Uh, you know, the first time I, I actually added them all up and broke a hundred, I was actually by myself. So I, you know, uh, coincidentally, I I'm counting post, it, Fred. <laughs> I couldn't post this uh, round, but I remember distinctly the first time I broke a hundred. It was I shot a ninety-two, which I had never gotten close to that, and surprisingly, I just kept the ball in play. And, uh, and it actually was a new awareness that instead of, you know, because look, I'm six foot six and a half. Uh, I struggle with the driver. I think golf is very challenging for tall folks. There's so much that can go wrong. Number two, I think basketball players have an instinct problem when it comes to golf. Like we want to go, you know, very quick at everything. And, you know, so smoothness is sometimes a challenge and that shows up in your longer clubs. Um, but, uh, I, I do remember the first time I broke a hundred at Northwood and then I went back out with my buddies that weekend and again, shot a 92. And so it was, you know, that to me, that was a momentous occasion. I remember breaking 90 for the first time. Uh, and I also remember breaking 80 for the first time. And so, you know, look, I would say one thing, Michael, one, um, my mentors in the game, uh, you know, really the guys that, that, you know, I've grown up within the game. Guys like Jonas Woods, Sands, Chipman at Trinity Forest, they've made room for me too. They are much better players, and yet they've brought me along the last six years to every golf trip, to every four-ball match. Uh, they have just made it uh, very comfortable for me to keep improving. And while we joke and, and sort of rag each other every weekend, uh, they also have been very confirmational in terms of the improvements made. And I think if everyone can find their little tribe uh, where they learn – uh, spend time together and enjoy, you know, and, you know, I have to give a shout out to all my buddies uh, down in South Florida, you know, like uh, I love going down and playing, you know, you know, every weekend that I can during the winter. Cause again, that's another level of golf and it's always a competition. And uh, you know, I think we all love that. And then finally, I have to say, you know, um, much credit has to be given for my, you know, administrative, um, you know, sort of learning, you know, Stu Francis has just been an unbelievable predecessor. I think, you know, we ought to put a statue out in front of the headquarters having to navigate and lead uh, a transition from Mike Davis to Mike Wan, having to navigate, uh, you know, COVID um, and, you know, having the clear eyed vision in terms of, you know, how my skills might translate to the USGA. He's been uh, everything to me. And so no one rises by themselves. We all stand under trees that we didn't plant. What a gift this game is. You know, where in life would a Fred Propol and a Stu Francis become best friends other than in the game of golf? And that's, 
that's something that uh, I think many of us have probably have stories like this in the game. And so thank you for your time today and thank you for, you know, your sort of interest. And I hope, hope this has been enjoyable. It's been great. And uh, that's a beautiful concluding note because when it is all said and done, the friendship, uh, the game is so rich in so many different ways. But in my experience, the single greatest thing out of this game is the friendships that you make out of it. And, uh, and some of the challenges of finding your way to golf in the first place and getting halfway competent at it, the qualities that we share in common, no matter what our background is, is kind of the, the very factors that let a meaningful friendship get off the ground uh, in the first place. So that was beautifully said, Fred. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know Stu Francis, he is not a six foot six inch Bahamian basketball player. He has a. He, he did play basketball in Princeton. He did play basketball oh, interesting. in Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I wondered if he played for Pete Carell. <laughs> He's got a little well, That does say a lot. Uh, Fred and I have talked about this. I was with Curtis Strange, a two-time U.S. Open winner, and won a U.S. Open at the Country Club. And, uh, you know, Curtis is feisty. And I said to Curtis, I said, you know, you give me someone who can, uh, who can shoot pool and make free throws, and I think that guy can become a good basketball player. And Curtis said, yeah, that's correct. I'd actually agree with that. You know, the actually is like you finally said something that is maybe halfway insightful. Fred, thanks so much for this. I'll look forward to seeing you here at Marion and at the Country Club as well and uh, for years and years to come, I hope. Thank you. Michael, thank you for everything you do for the game. Appreciate being with you today. Another log on the fire Nobody here is getting tired 